0: We should consider meditation and the development of wisdom as a marathon, not as a sprint, Utejaniya says. And I think we've all gotten a glimpse of why he says that. When we start Dharma practice or when we first hear of the Dharma, we first hear of the possibility of Uh, liberating the mind or deconditioning our unskillful habits. We get inspired and we get uh, excited about the possibilities and we pick up a a tool, a technique, a a meditation, a practice and we apply it with great interest and energy. I think hoping for some quick fix. Looking for some magical, magical, experience is just going to hand it to us on a platter one of you came in today and was sharing with me that you know 40 years ago when he started practice you know awakening seems so close <laughs> <laughs> and now after 40 years of practice it seems so far away Uh, even a retreat like this can reveal that to you so I want to uh, I want to speak about um, taking practice home, but I want to speak about it from the perspective of not just doing a technique of practice or following a particular meditation, but really establishing your life in the Dharma and living a life of awareness. So it's not just do you sit an hour a day or can you go to a retreat once or twice a year? But really, what does it mean to really establish your life in the truth of the Dharma and live your whole life as Dharma dharma practice? A life of awareness. Sado Tejaniya mentions in the book that you received that the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties that kind of guide the unfolding of our spiritual life are a good template for understanding what what's actually happening here both in the retreat with our formal practice but in life as we move out into the world and engage the world our world with awareness and these five factors I want to speak about them tonight and kind of identify them because as a whole these five factors are at play in the process of awareness and so we can begin to see them in our life as we practice awareness and as we live a life, a lifestyle of awareness. So these five faculties are the first is sada or faith or confidence. The second is virya, energy, or effort, uh, persevering, the persevering quality of the mind. The third is sati or mindfulness, the remembering of the present moment. The fourth is samadhi, or stability of mind, sometimes called concentration, collectedness of mind. And the fifth is panya, wisdom, or the understanding that emerges from uh, insight into our um, our own process. Now, the interesting thing about these five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, Is that they are sequential, they're cyclic and they develop gradually in this way with a little bit of faith or a little bit of confidence. You read a book, you hear a teacher, uh, you get some you know beginner's luck experience and you feel confident faith and with that faith we're willing to make some effort to further our Path towards our aspiration and that effort or that energy, the second factor, results in greater awareness, greater, greater remembering, greater presence of mind just in continuity. And the more continuous that remembering and, uh, and mindfulness is, the more collected the mind becomes. The more collected the mind becomes, the more we see of each moment's experience. It's like looking at events through a magnifying lens. You're seeing the same thing, but you're seeing much more detail when the mind is collected. When there's more understanding of the way things are in life or in a moment or in an experience, we feel a boost of confidence. We feel a boost of faith. We have more um, sense of possibility in our practice. And again, we make more effort more remembering more mindfulness more concentration more wisdom and the process keeps going like that we keep gradually developing more and more faith more and more energy more and more mindfulness more and more collectedness of mind or stability of mind and more and more understanding we may think a single turn of the wheel through those five faculties is enough but remember, it's a marathon. There are endless turns of the the wheel of these five faculties to be developed for um, realizing our aspiration. So the first is sada, or faith, confidence. And I think, you know, for a long time I thought, as a quality of mind that it was a noun like oh you either have it or you don't have it it's a thing it's a it's a, a a quality that you have but now i understand that it's really a verb that faithing or having confidence in and and having a process of confiding in is more is a more appropriate understanding of how this factor works in the mind. I think I made reference um, somewhere during the retreat to my first retreat. And, you know, I was, as I said, I was living in a commune in central Maine. Uh, It was a Grateful Dead Pink Floyd commune (laughs) partaking of the sacrament as often as we could. And uh, we, I I and another person there heard that there was going to be a a mindfulness retreat nearby and uh, we thought it was something like a resort and so we went to this this place at the appointed day and we walked in on the last two weeks of the first three month course and everybody's walking around now there's 50 or 60 people been there for two and a half months practicing (laughs) we walked in to kind of do the last two weeks with them they're all wrapped up in blankets looking at the floor not looking at us not Talking, not doing anything. We looked at the schedule on the on the meditation hall door. It said, Wake up, four o'clock, you know, exercise, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, tea, you know, sit, walk, seven thirty, talk, eight thirty, sit, walk, further pra- further practice. We looked at each other and said, Well at least we get an hour to talk to each other. <laughs> We didn't get an hour to talk to each other. We got an hour to listen to somebody else talk. Well, that's how naive we were. We didn't, we didn't know anything. But we were there. So we, 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 did, we did the retreat. Now, I don't know how it was for you, but I'd never read a Dharma book. I didn't have any interest in spirituality. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew Buddhism was a religion, but that's all I knew about it. I didn't know anything. And yet, I heard the Dharma talks every night. For 14 days and it was as if i was hearing somebody articulate my mind and my understanding it's like i heard it for the first time and i felt i've always known this this is what this is what i think this is what i believe although i'd never heard it before and i won't deceive you I suffered terribly during that retreat. I sat up back, leaned against the piano. My body was in screeching agony. My mind was going through detox. It was having a hell of a time. And it was just, it was not pleasant. But I understood what the talks were about. We went back to the commune at the end of the retreat. And we'd been, in the, we'd been in a container like this for two weeks, drove back to the commune and got out of the car and kind of greeted everybody. Everybody was there doing the same thing they'd always been doing and same people, same thing. Nothing was the same. Everything was different to our mind. It's just our minds had been completely turned around, just had a different direction in life. And I often wonder, what happened? You know, in this retreat, I mean, it's like I go in there knowing nothing. I come out like knowing nothing either, but <laughs> a, a different nothing. <laughs> a different nothing. <laughs> and it's like, wh- what happened? Well, I woke up, or I was awakened from this slumber of not knowing, not caring no aspiration, no direction in life, just kind of living out my conditioning, my family and cultural conditioning of, you know, the 1950s. And it was like, what? And I just woke up and just said, this is not the direction I want to be going. Well, over the next seven years, doing retreats and just getting more, invested in the dharma and and just coming here cuz this place was purchased shortly after that first retreat and spending a lot of time here as on staff for several years and on the board of directors and just did the whole thing here it was really uh, a cleaning up my act it was really you know they they say they say there's three pillars to the dharma to establish your life in the dharma to establish your life in the truth you need to do these three practices Dana, or generosity, Sila, or living ethically, and Bhavana, developing your mind. And those seven years were cleaning up my act. Just slowly, gradually, not out of any radical decision, but just out of doing more practice and following the lead of where my awareness took me, I just, you know, I just stopped doing drugs and stopped hanging around with people that were leading me in the wrong direction and just started hanging around with people who were interested in practicing and spent more time and just saw my whole life moving in the direction of meaningful friendships and meaningful, purposeful living in the direction of an aspiration that had been awoken on that first retreat. When I came to staff here, came on staff here the first, a couple of years after I did the first retreat, I came on staff. The first day I was working here, I was up in the attic of the Catskills over there, uh, insulate, putting insulation in the ceiling with uh, Rodney Smith, who was on staff at the time, and we were having a discussion. Now I'd done one retreat, remember? We were having a discussion about nibana. <laughs> you know, Might as well cut to the chase, and we were having a discussion about the Nibbana, and I said to Rodney, he reminded me a few years ago, he said that I said to him with utmost sincerity, adamantly, I have no doubt in this lifetime I'll realize the Dhamma. I knew I would. I had no idea what I was saying. (laughs) But I had absolute confidence and faith that this practice would get me there. Faith doesn't rely on knowledge so much as an internal harmonization with an aspiration and a confidence born of some inner experience that is just supports us to further our efforts developing the path to fulfill or realize our aspiration. Now, we don't only have one moment of faith and waking up. More recently, you know, is pretty good. Living with the precepts is, is, not that, is not impossible. But I started to notice, and this is where awareness takes over. You start to notice things in your life that you've been doing your whole life, but you never saw him before. You never saw it like that before. I, I've never been much of a uh, drinker, uh, but occasionally I would have a, a glass of wine and, you know, maybe six or eight glasses of wine a year in a restaurant, and it's not much. But I started noticing, while I like the buzz, and that, that's fine, the next morning, my mind was not hungover, but it was always mushy. It was always spongy. It just couldn't quite, it wasn't crisp. It didn't, it didn't pick up things. It, you know, I couldn't pick up ideas or uh, even email content with the same crisp, clear, clear, subtle difference. But it was enough for me to say, you know what? I don't, think this is, I don't think this is onward leading in the direction of my aspiration. Clearing the mind, understanding what's going on, suffering less. And it wasn't like I had to kind of beat myself up and force myself to do anything. It's just quite naturally, the mind just says, I don't need to do this anymore. This is the natural renunciation that comes from a life of awareness. Quite naturally, in the course of awareness, developing awareness, in our everyday activities... We look through our life. We we go rummaging around in the attics of our life, and we find these beliefs, behaviors, people, things that we don't need anymore. That just aren't serving us. They're baggage that we're carrying around. Old habits, old formerly intimate or useful, beneficial. Friendships, stuff, and they just aren't serving our life anymore. We outgrow them. And it takes some courage to, in this, you know, rummaging around in the attics, to recognize this is no longer serving my life and to let it go not to throw it away, not out of aversion, not out of blame or anything. You just outgrow that which does not further the development of the path. This is what awareness, this is the path, this is what awareness brings you to. Quite naturally, you will discover this happening in your life. So with that, with faith, with this clarification of your aspiration with some confidence to, to move forward with developing awareness the next factor of the eightfold of the uh, five faculties is is virya or effort energy because nothing in life is accomplished without making some effort things yeah you know, things do fall out of the sky occasionally but usually not fulfilling your aspiration so we have to make some effort And even though we may have a lot of faith and a lot of confidence, effort or energy doesn't come naturally, doesn't come just kind of as a matter of course or matter of fact. There has to be some spark, some spark that takes and ignites that faith. And it's said in the teachings that energy is sparked by, or effort is sparked by, a sense of urgency. Samvega is the term in the in the Pali language. Samvega is this kind of a a quickening in the heart that says, I gotta do something about this. I got you know, you feel an urgency to kind of get going on wherever it is you're going. And remember one of us was talking about the Prince Siddhartha, the the Bodhisattva who later became the Buddha, when he left his father's palace and he went outside the the protection of his father's uh, kingdom or outside the, the palace he saw an elderly person a sick person and a corpse and when he saw them and I mean he saw them with his eye of wisdom and he understood this happens to everyone and it'll happen to me he got this sense of urgency like "Ha! what do you have to do what is it? How do you how do you free yourself from the suffering of old age, sickness, and death? How do you do that? And he just got this urge to discover for himself the way out of suffering. Well, we may not see an old an old person, a corpse, and a sick person, but there's something that sparks us to come on a retreat. To undertake some practice to do whatever it is we do in our uh, uh, to further our uh, aspiration and path this kind of um, upsurge of intention upsurge of urgency upsurge of I kind of got to get on with the program here also comes not only once but comes many times in the course of our uh, developing of the path. And it, it, it comes in a grand form occasionally, but when we come on retreat, really the energy and the urgency is not so much a dramatic um, upsurge. It's something that saito says needs to be persevering. It's just keep going just be careful not to drop the ball just you know from wake up till sleep just keep noticing just keep being aware don't make a big rush of it don't make a big to do about it but be willing to last the whole day It's said that the manifestation of energy or the manifestation of virya is non-collapse okay now, this is, a, uh, this is a visual teaching I'm going to offer now, so you have to watch me. Non-collapse or collapse is like this. You know, you're going along, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, pain. <laughs> and the mind lets go of the thread of the continuity of awareness. And it collapses. When the mind collapses, the defilement's the torments, they all rush in. And so the energy of practice is really non-collapse. It's just how to maintain the energy of the mind engaged knowingly, willingly with each moment as it appears. And when you see that the mind gets frustrated or overwhelmed or uh, you know entangled in some way, the mind loses its, it just kind of collapses. And it's often depicted in the body that's collapsed too, but it's really the mind just kind of dropping the ball of the present moment, not really following through. I noticed this a few years ago when I was in um, Portland. I was going to Portland pretty frequently to work with a group there several times a year. And I would stay in a hotel in town and get my meals in the restaurants there. And as is visible in any city, there were a tremendous amount of street people, homeless people, panhandlers in Portland. It was just unbelievable. I've always lived in the country. Panhandlers in the country don't don't make it, so they don't go there. (laughs) I mean, so we don't see them. it was like god I come out of the hotel and it's like i'd have to walk around many to get to a nearby restaurant and i realized awareness again showing me the reality of the present moment that i was upset i was uh, I, i didn't like being around panhandlers and street people and i just didn't like being confronted with them by them i didn't want to have to deal with them i was a little bit scared of them uh you know some of them were Different looking uh, and different acting and it was just it was just not pleasant and I would you know cross the street to avoid them, but there'd be others over there and just, it's like okay well at some point I realized hey they're just <laughs> they're just doing their life I'm suffering I'm suffering I'm the one who's upset impatient kind of a little bit afraid don't understand what's going on, and we'd rather avoid, you know, just kind of be in denial that they're even there, just kind of walk down by and don't see him And I said, This is suffering. I, I'm the one who's suffering. They're not going to change their life, so I stop suffering. I got to do something about this. Oh, okay. So my awareness showed me that I was suffering, and the, the, The practice, the tool, the vehicle for non-suffering in that situation, I determined was being generous. Now, generosity is another, it's the first of the three pillars, practices to be developed to establish your life in the truth, the Dharma. dana, or generosity, sila, cleaning up your ethical act, and, and bhavana, developing the mind. So I said, okay, I'm going to make it a practice to meet and greet these street people, homeless people. That was not easy, but I just said, you know what? It's my suffering, I gotta get a handle on this. So I would go down the street and I would just greet who was there, just, how are you doing? How's it going today? And then eventually get to the, you know, what do you need or what would you like? How can I help? And you know, you get some really interesting conversations with people on the street when you really engage them. And, you know, what what do you need? I need a quarter, or I need, you know, a bottle of beer, or I need a sandwich, or whatever. And I wasn't in I wasn't sitting in judgment of what they needed, I was just engaging them. And I would always offer some, you know, small financial token of support, a dollar, two, five, sometimes a little more, just to kind of acknowledge my uh, recognition of their humanity. And even though it was a small gesture, it was a big gesture in my heart. And I, I realized something really uh, really important for me, that all of those people, whatever their conditions in life, they're people. They have a heart. They have a life. They have a story. They're real. They're human. And in connecting with them, it became, for me, like a love fest. It's like I was so happy to meet them, to greet them, to hear their story, just, you know, for a minute or two, and to offer them something. And I got so happy and so non-suffering from being willing to confront my own fear, confront my own judgment, confront my own unknowing. Who who are these people? Because awareness showed me how much I was suffering. And I realized that, you know, whatever it is we give to a homeless person or a panhandler or anyone who's in need or who asks or... Who we see we want to help, what we give them is love. We give them the love of being recognized as a worthy human being to have, to, to just be there in their own space. It is, it's the simplest of gifts and it's the most meaningful of gifts to give. And yet, we avoid the opportunity, so much of the time. Well, awareness will bring you out of the denial that there's suffering in your own heart around this topic, around this issue, around this behavior, around this condition in our life. And awareness will demand that you, if you want to stop suffering, you have to do something about it. The third, oh, one of my great spiritual teachers of the last century, Don Juan from uh, Carlos Castaneda's books (laughs) says this about energy. Carlos writes Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. I can confirm that that is true. We have to work at making ourselves miserable. And if we use the same amount of energy in a skillful way with awareness and understanding, the mind comes together. We become stronger. We become more whole. We become more alive, more awake to the life within us. So with... With faith or with confidence, we make this effort, persevering effort, uh, if we can, to be more mindful. Now, mindfulness has the function of not forgetting or remembering. Now, if, you, know, if, if you had a little recorder, kind of you know if you, if you programmed your, your iPhone to kind of send you a little message periodically, it says, "Pay attention." Notice that. Remember this? Remember that? Remember you're alive now? Okay. You know, if we had a little, little reminder like that, we, we'd shut that thing off pretty quick, but... <laughs> initially, we'd be reminded, right? The hard thing is remembering to remind ourselves. You know, so we, 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 we give you as much as we can, but a large part of the you know time on retreats like this is internalizing the instruction So you can remind yourself, remember, you're alive, pay attention, something's happening, something's being known, are you recognizing it? Well, mindfulness has the function of remembering, just not forgetting. Not forgetting means we just space out, we we space in, we space out, we wander off, we go blank, we, we just disappear. We forget. We forget that we're alive. We forget who we are. We forget where we are. We forget everything when we're lost in thought like that, don't we? When you remember, it's like immediately, you're back. You're here. You're present. You're recognizing this moment of life. It's remembering. After I'd been practicing for about nine years, yeah, nine years, Saito Upandita came to IMS for the first time to offer a three-month retreat for 20 yogis. I happened to be invited because I was the on the board and the manager at the time, and so I did this retreat with um, Upandita. Now I was not a good yogi. I, I was, uh, uh, I had, I was trying, but I just, I was a slow learner, a, a really, really slow learner. Please don't follow my path, but you know, slow. So after nine years, not, didn't really, hadn't really gotten with the program yet. I was just cleaning up my act. So I was reporting to him every day. And I was following this woman who was having a great retreat. So down at the end of the hall, upstairs, Saito was in the room, translator. You'd go in, you'd do your bows, you'd, talk, you'd tell him what your experience is, it'd get translated, he'd give you some instruction back, and you'd walk out the hall. But I was waiting in the hall while she finished her work, her report, so that I could just step right in and it wouldn't, wouldn't waste time. So one time I was standing out in the hall, and I heard this, this woman giving a report. She was so excited. She was just, just inflamed with excitement and loud. And she was so happy. She was remembering her past lives and where she'd been and what she was doing. It's like she was just like having a just a great time. And I was thinking, past lives. Where's the breath? <laughs> So, so she came out. She walked past me. I go into the. I go into the. To do my bows. I did my bows. I was so upset. I was like, what else? I mean, I was totally disoriented. So I blurted out to Upandit. I said, "What are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something?" <laughs> he looks at me very calmly. He said, "No, remembering this life. That's it." All we're doing is trying to remember this life, moment by moment. That's what mindfulness is. Well, it took a while. But what happens with this continuity of remembering is we start coming out of denial. And denial is not only a river in Egypt. okay. sorry (laughs) okay (laughs) denial is when you live with something day in day out and you don't recognize it personal story here so I grew up in a household kind of a dysfunctional household many of us do for one reason or another my father was an alcoholic and a drug addict, um, prescription drug addict, and maybe a little bit psychotic, too, semi-psychotic. And I lived with this fellow, and I saw him drink, and I saw him take pills, and I I knew what the situation was, but I never understood it. I mean, I never really, I never really, kind of, got it. He passed away at a really young age, 20 years later, I'm sitting in the monastery in Burma just doing my practice and all of these memories of my father started coming into view. But now, because the mindfulness was so clear and so continuous, there was no no story about what I was seeing. Everything came into view and I saw clearly, understood, what was going on. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic and he was you know this was his life even though you live with it we don't understand it we don't understand that's what's happening something else has to come come into the mind to to understand and it's this not forgetting because the sense doors take in they see they hear everything this the mind is a perfect camcorder Everything has been recorded, and it's in your mind. But because we didn't have any wisdom or less wisdom, very little mindfulness, we didn't understand. We don't understand what's, what's going on. Until we develop mindfulness now through practice, and those memories come into view, and we see. Well, not only see, we understand, oh, that's what was going on. That's what I was feeling at the time. We don't have any, there's no spin. Mindfulness is the anti-spin factor of the mind. You can't convince yourself, you can't explain to yourself, you can't kind of rationalize your behavior. You see it as it really was, felt. This is the power of mindfulness. It will not let you deceive yourself any longer. And it's a powerful, powerful tool because there's a lot of stuff that has gone into our minds that we've had to explain away. We've had to rationalize away. We've had to pretend didn't exist, didn't happen, whatever it is. And when we cultivate this remembering and seeing things without any spin, without any explanation, we're going to get, we're going to see it. We're going to feel it. We're going to understand it as it really was. And it takes a tremendous, um, willingness to suffer with awareness. <sighs> okay, so, I'm in the monastery, doing my practice, just kind of trying to remember to be present, moment after moment, as, as best I can, and I've been practicing for, at that time I think a couple of years, just doing like you've been doing here for nine days, I was in my second or third year, and I'm walking on the back side of uh, an alleyway on the back side of the dormitory where I was, was living. I can remember the exact spot. I can remember which direction I was headed. I can remember the time of day. I can remember everything. But I saw something for the first time in my life. I saw this attitude or this uh, behavior of self pity. I saw the mind saying, "Oh poor me, oh poor me! I can't, I can't do this. Oh poor me, I can't, I can't do this, because you know I'm too old, I'm too stupid, whatever." And I saw this, in a, and and it, it was what led to the collapse, collapsing energy. Because when that when that when that thought or feeling belief came into my mind, the mind would go, "I give up, I give up." But I saw it. I said, wow, what is this? I've never felt that way. I was, I was still pretty young. And I was like, you know, really confident and energetic and, you know, full of myself. <clears throat> and uh, I saw this self-pity, like, oh, poor me. Oh, it's kind of like whiny mind. Oh, poor me, I'm too stupid. I started practice too late. You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, and just stopped practice. Every, every time it rose, I stopped practice. My mind, my mind just stopped. Stopped being mindful and and just gave up. But I'd never seen this before. But as as I began to pay attention, I saw it a lot. And it's like, I saw it so often, it was like I had to remind myself, every time, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to believe this. You can see it as a habit of mind that if you don't see it, you'll buy into it. If you do see it, you don't buy into it. You just see it, and it goes by, and you don't, you don't collapse. You don't, you don't believe it. You don't fall into it. I didn't have to spend my time denying it. No, 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 I'm not stupid. I'm not too old. I'm not, you don't have, that's buying into it. But just to see, oh, here's a, here's a thought that has been conditioned or a feeling that's been conditioned into my life, who knows where, somewhere back there. And I lived with it for, at that point, 38 years. I'd lived with a habit of mind for thirty-eight years and never saw it. Never saw it. Never felt self-pity before. And it just came into view so clear, and it was so obvious what was happening that I just put myself on this, noticed it every time, and for a few weeks, month—I don't know how long—I would just catch it every time, just like every time, and it was a lot. I I couldn't believe how much it arose or tried to arise. After some period of time, and I don't know when it was, it stopped arising. I haven't seen it since. We can, through this remembering and through this clear seeing and understanding, we decondition those habits, and we can actually uproot them from the mind. They don't come by. This is the path. That we're on this is the path of remembering and understanding developing wisdom and understanding that kind of remembering is part of the bhavana or the development of mind the third pillar of establishing the dharma in our life mindfulness where we just remember with greater frequency and the mind gets developed and this is what it means to develop the mind you become more aware so the fourth controlling faculty is samadhi or ekagata. It means it's often translated as concentration. I, I don't really like that con- that word. It, it's misleading, but it really means collectedness of mind, and it's experienced as stability of mind. When the mind is collected and settled, it just it just kind of gets much more contact with the present moment you just feel it more you see it more you go you're more intimate with it okay that's what the stability of the mind or the collectedness of the mind does for practice or does to our life and so we begin to uh, calm down for one thing the mind wanders less because of the continuity of remembering and it's pleasant samadhi is pleasant it has a uh you know uh there's a certain comfort that comes with the collectedness of the mind because the mind's not not restless and wandering and going here and going there and frenetic and anxious and fretful and it's it's just it's able to just kind of you know they kind of talk about it you know you take a you take a bag of, bag of rice and you toss it on the table, toss it on the floor, it doesn't bounce, it doesn't shake, it doesn't jiggle, it just lands. Clunk. That's what samadhi is like. When your mind has some samadhi, it lands on the present moment like clunk. Not hard, but it doesn't bounce, it doesn't wobble, it doesn't quiver, it doesn't shake. It just gets there. It is said that the proximate cause for this kind of samadhi this kind of mind that is just willing and able to just land on the present moment with contact. It's said that the proximate cause of that is happy comfort of mind and body. That means let your body be comfortable. Let your mind be comfortable. It will naturally just settle right on the present moment without a lot of focusing and struggling and trying to jam it into some small sensation in the nostrils or the belly, and just kind of like, you know, trying to get concentrated like this. Give yourself a headache and sore shoulders, shoulders. Actually, it's relax. Relax the body, relax the mind, and the mind will just naturally settle on the present moment. The concentrated mind, or the collected mind, the mind with samadhi, happens due to the continuity of remembering, not the size of the object that you're tending to. The more continuous the remembering, the more the collectedness of mind. It's not that you aim at just a single object or a small sensation. That's not what's getting collected. That's not what's collecting the mind. It's the continuity of it. So when we, in vipassana practice, develop this continuity and this collectedness of mind and this stability of mind, where you don't shake, you don't vibrate, you don't walk, you don't rattle, you don't you're just there. It allows the mind to be very open, very accommodating. Whatever's happening. Because the mind's not shaking, the mind's not, not getting into panic, not getting agitated. You can just accept th- this is the way it is, you know? And even with the very rapid change of experience that we that you're becoming familiar with. You know how quickly objects change from sight to sound to sensation to thought to, to feeling to mood to the breath to this? it's it's like it's it's incessant and it's fast. And the mind can be totally still. At ease and see it all. Several years ago, <clears throat> I was having a <clears throat> well—you could call it a discussion. It was more like a negotiation with the um, water department in where I lived, <clears throat> as we were trying to uh, get water to our property, and it was an expensive, time-consuming process. We worked at it for 12 years, spent over a million dollars, and just, this was a group of neighbors, and it was just in the last stages of trying to negotiate a cheaper price. So I went to the deputy director of the water department with a list of changes to the design of the project that I thought could reduce the price and would still serve the purpose. So I got a meeting with him, and he came, or I went to the meeting, and he had two or three of his engineers there and he and you know, they're all sitting in their office you know with their stacks of files on our project and so I come in that handed them all a, a, an agenda with a list of items I wanted to go over The first one is could we reduce the size of the holding tank from 10,000 gallons to a thousand gallons or 2,000 gallons so they had a discussion among themselves, section so-and-so, they look up here and they say, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to do that, you know, section three, four, five of page 87, it says, you know, you've got to have 10,000 gallons. Hmm. Okay, how about, can we reduce the size of the pipe coming into the tank or out of the tank from 8 inches to 6 inches? Since we have to run a mile from the tank, it you know, it would save us $50,000 or something. So they said, well, they looked in the thing, they looked up the rules. and No, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. That size tank needs eight-inch pipe. Okay. Uh, Third item, can we do, you know, and I went like this through about half a dozen items, every one of which was, no, we're not going to be able to do that. So the deputy director of the water department, he turns to me and he says, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you. Life's unfair. <laughs> okay. Good thing I've been practicing for 30 years. <laughs> Cuz in in a moment, in a split second, my mind just scrolled through swearing, <laughs> shock, surprise, shame, embarrassment, anger, fear, Resolved, impatient. Just, just scrolled through. I just sitting there like stunned. Like, come on, did he just say that? You know, and I was humiliated because I was the only one. You know, and there was about three, four, I don't know, five of them engineers, and, and it was like clearly I was outgunned, and it just samadhi really allowed me to just weather. All of that, my reactivity, and what went on. And it took, it, took, it took a little while. I don't think I said anything. It seemed like it was about for about two hours, but it was really just about 30 seconds probably. I didn't say anything. And finally my mind arrived, you know, the stuff that was scrolling through my mind. One of the things that came up in my mind eventually was, oh, this can be dealt with. And when it did, I saw that dropped in, The mind just settled. It was like, oh, this can be dealt with. Okay, number seven. How about, can we do this? Can we do that? No, 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 no. But the mind was totally accepting. Not shaken. Not wobbling. Not reacting to what happened. Because of samadhi. The calmness, the stability of the mind to be with the way things really are. And not kind of look for some other way out or in denial or trying to avoid anything. Just being present with, this is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be. Just like that. And the mind can be with it. If it has this stability of mind. So this stability of mind, this, this fourth factor, is, is, is what we most seek in our meditation. Is feeling calm in the, in the midst of the upheaval of our, of our life and of our mind. But with this stability of mind, we begin to really understand this is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be. We understand how things have come to be the way way they are. And we're able to live in alignment with the truth of what is known. This is what we've been doing here. Trying to recognize the way things are in our body, in our mind, in our moving about here, and to live in alignment with it, to not deny it, to not avoid it, to not minimize it, to not try to escape it, to not get kind of reactive to it, but just to be with it. And when we're able to be with it, we deeply, deeply understand that this is the way it is, it can be dealt with, and we can live at peace within our own mind and within our you know, neighborhoods, if you will, when we're out in life. I saw this really clearly when I was invited to visit uh, Shwayu Min Sayada. Some, some, I'd been in Burma for five years, and I was about to leave and come back to the States, and a couple of Burmese women said, you gotta meet our teacher, you gotta meet our teacher. Every Burmese family has a, a, a monk, an elder monk that is kind of like the family Therapist, the family counselor, the family babysitter, whatever—it's just like the one, the, the the spiritual leader of the of the family. And I I'd, I'd met a lot of them when I was in Burma for that time, and I wasn't really particularly interested. But they said, "Oh, you 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 got to meet our teacher." So I said, "All right, all right." So on the appointed day, we went. They came and picked me up. We drove through the suburbs to get to uh, North Okalapa, a suburb of Rangoon. And on the way, they told me about their teacher. Their teacher had been. Uh, the meditation master at the meditation center where I was then staying. He'd been there for 10 years and when it first opened in 1949. And after he'd been there 10 years, he got permission to leave, and he went to what was then the outskirts of Rangoon, got a small piece of property, a couple of acres, and built a monastery for himself. Lived very simply, uh, just wooden buildings, didn't have electricity, phone for a long time, no concrete buildings, just wooden shacks, and he said that uh, they were telling me that he, he wouldn't allow fancy buildings to be built. He wouldn't, have, for a long time, he wouldn't allow electricity. He was just living very simply. So we went to see him. And indeed, he was, the, the place was very simple. Uh, quiet, cool, because it didn't cut down the trees. And there was a few, just a few monks here, half a dozen, six or eight monks. And uh, several, several elderly women who had done with their family, domestic responsibilities that lived in a kind of a hostel for women there. And it was just really pleasant. So I, I spoke with him a little bit, told him I'd been there for five years. I was about to return to America. Wanted to know if he had any advice um, that he could share with me. And he thought, and he was very reflective, and he was just really calm and, and very present, without seeming to struggle at all or strain. And he just said, you know, when you return to America, just keep doing your practice. As long as you do your practice, everything will be okay. Simple enough. Hard to do, but simple enough. So I was really struck by his demeanor and asked if I could come back and practice with him. And he said, yes. And I eventually got a uh, permit from the government to go stay with him for a couple of weeks. While I was there, I just began to see how he ran his center. It was very... Very quiet, simple. And he, he let me stay in his room. Uh, he, had a, he had a meditation room, which is about 60 feet long, five feet wide, a bed at one end, toilet at the other. So you just go in this room, and you can walk, do your walking practice, and sit, walking practice, and sit all day, all day, all night. And I asked him if I should go on alms round to get my food, daily food. He said no. We'll He and the other monks would go get food, and they'd share it with me. And I didn't have to leave the room. Okay, great. So I was in the room practicing for, you know, I was going to be there for a couple of weeks. And after four or five days, you know, the mind gets a little restless and you kind of want to go out and see what's going on out there. And kind of, <laughs> you know, the windows of the, the windows of the place were such that you could see the ground right outside, but you couldn't see anything more than a few feet away from the building, you know, enough to let the breeze through and a little light, but you couldn't see anything. So I wanted to go outside. So <clears throat> I went to the door of my, in the middle of this long hallway, I went to the door, opened the door to step outside. He was standing right there, <laughs> looking at me kindly, like, you know, just no, no, no judgment or anger or, or anything. or you're just like, how are you doing? You know, and I just kind of smiled and closed the door and went back inside. <laughs> and, I kept practicing for another four or five days. When my mind got pretty restless and pretty jammed up with the tight space, so I said, oh, see, so I'm gonna go, I gotta go outside and walk around the monastery a little bit." I opened the door. He wasn't right there. He was about five feet away, right there. And I went back in. I said, "Wow, I don't know. This guy, just there's something going on here." Anyway, cut a long story short. The last day I was there he took me on alms round with him and we lined up and we were going out the monastery and he was leading and I was about third or fourth fifth person and for fifth monk in the line and when he got to the edge of his monastery where the forest stopped and suburbia started, he stepped aside and he waved his other monks through and when I came along he pulled me aside, waved the other monks through and he turned around to walk back into the monastery and asked me to follow him and as I looked to see where the other monks are going the street, the roadway ahead of them, was lined with people waiting to offer them their food. I mean, dozens, hundreds of people. I thought, wow. So we went back in the monastery, walked, walked through the monastery, and went out the back way. Nobody out there. And it was just walk. I was followed him for maybe 10, 15 minutes, just walking through these back alleyways. Now, back alleyway there is like an oxcart trail. Sand, you know, there's no vehicles. It's just oxcat trail, trail in your bare feet. And it's like I was following the Buddha from 2,500 years ago. And it was like so quiet and so serene. And when we came, turned around a corner and came into view of a, a small a kind of restaurant-y, kiosk-y type place on the roadside, somebody said, oh, the monks are coming, the monks are coming. So we stopped there because everybody in, the, everybody in the restaurant came out to offer something. They got something from the, the vendors and offered something. So we stood there, and for 10 minutes, stand there, and people from all over, all the little shops around and the neighbors around, would get something and bring it to us and put us in a bowl. Well, our bowls got full pretty quick, so some of the merchants gave some of the little temple boys that were always hanging around plastic bags. We emptied our bowls into the bags a few times, still standing there just receiving we went on an alms round like that for two hours that morning and it was like a whole trail of temple boys carrying all these bags of you know food and flowers and all kinds of stuff to get back to and we got back to the monastery and of course there was way more food than you know six or eight monks can eat but because monks can't keep food overnight they have to get their food each day fresh each day we ate what we needed gave some to the women that take care of the monastery, and the rest gets redistributed to the poor people in the village, every day. I come to find out, when he left the meditation center, 30 years before that, and went to this uh, outskirts of Rangoon, people knew about him, knew that he practiced, and wanted to be around him to receive his teachings, and this whole suburbia this vast, sprawling shantytown, suburbia, had grown up around his monastery of people who wanted to be there to hear his teaching and practice with him. So he had built, he'd, he'd had built a large meditation hall where they would work during the day and they would come to the monastery at night, sit and walk for a couple hours, listen to a short Dharma talk, and this is the way that he lived. Through the integrity of his life, and his dedication to awareness and liberation and living the pure life of the monk and offering the teachings to those who are interested, then he was able to really provide the sustenance for this whole suburb of Rangoon. And they in turn supported him and the monks that were there. Through the quality of his life, of awareness, he was a source of strength, generosity, understanding, instruction, guidance. He was just a pillar of human goodness that that he was offering to them just as a gift. His life was just a gift to them to live their life by, with. That's what we do when we develop a life of awareness. Maybe not in such a grand scale, but when we live a life of awareness and integrity and generosity and living ethically, we become a force in the life of others we share life with. We don't have to toot our horn. We just have to live simply and live cleanly, with awareness, with understanding, with uh, practicing generosity and living ethically. And because it's so noticeable when someone lives that way, others take notice. We're not only affected by those who are bad hats and you know difficult to live with, we're also affected deeply by those who are very... Um, kind, generous, compassionate, understanding, patient. And this is what the life and lifestyle of awareness will do to us. As long as we practice awareness, as long as we develop these five faculties, these five guiding or spiritual faculties, we too will become a force of goodness by just, by, just by being a good human being and sharing our life with others. So our practice here, even though it's been struggling with knee pain and restless mind and you know, whinging and whining, this is the direction we're going with this practice, to develop the strength of mind to not collapse in the face of challenges and difficulties and pain of one sort or another, but to persevere, to have faith, to grow in understanding, and to let that just be the direction of our life. This is a good way to live. As Saito says, When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. This will help you to do well in life. So let's just sit and let the words quiet down. There is nothing more interesting than using Dhamma in your daily life, Sayadaw Tejaniya says. People don't use the Dhamma that much in daily life because they don't know the quality, the value, and the inherent worth of the Dhamma. Someone who really practices in daily life will know the value of this practice as something they can't live without. Think of your home as a retreat center and practice in that way. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma.